Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive interview where we have on a single an- or an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we have on Alex Morris. He's been a friend of the show for a long time. And we're talking about Roku, which is fairly controversial. A lot of people either love it or hate it, surprisingly, uh, since they're basically just a TV operating system. But uh, it's a fun business to study because there's so many different angles. I really enjoyed this. Alex always brings in a lot of insight that's really helpful. And he's very concise and gets to the points that matter the most for companies. Did you have any highlights from the interview? Yeah, we should say that he runs the Science of Hitting uh, Research Service and Substack. So check that out. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, I mean, yeah, the highlights are just talking about, you know, the international expansion, the relationships with YouTube and Netflix and how they will benefit or not when these new advertising tiers and just advertising in general comes to connected TV, because it seems simple that advertising dollars go up, Roku benefits if they have more users, but it's really not that simple just because of the intricacies and relationships with all the content providers. Uh, But before we do the episode, let's talk about our exclusive sponsor through the end of 2022, and that is Seven Investing, a research service that has been around for a few years now and has tons of research reports on various companies. They release seven research reports a month, plus more. But I want to highlight on this episode that because of all the research reports each month, they now have over 200 companies that have been covered. And the benefits of the service is that this compounds over time. So as subscribers ourselves, when we discover a new company or are interested in something or kind of just want to learn the basics about something to kind of get a read on it, we'll go to 7investing, search if they have something. And if they do, it's great to read the write-ups that take about 10 to 15 minutes, give you a great overview of the business. And like I said, 200 different companies that span biotech, technology, uh, growth stocks, value stocks, really the whole gambit. And if you want to subscribe, use our code money, M-O-N-E-Y at checkout, get $100 off your annual subscription each year for life. That is a 25% discount. The link is in the show notes. That is code money, 25% off your annual subscription for life. All right, Ryan, I guess I'll introduce it. Let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. Today we are joined by Alex Morris, now recurring guest of the show. I'm not sure how many times you've been on, but it's it's been a lot. And today we're talking about one that I've wanted to talk to uh, you about this one for a while. And I think it's sort of a hot stock in the kind of financial well, community. A lot the of price people- is not the price is not hot, but you just had the write up on Roku. Um, it was very good. So I don't know. Any little short pitch you want to put on for the signs of hitting before we get into the Roku uh, discussion? Sure. And thanks again for having me on, guys. I always, always enjoy being here. Um, so the science of hitting TSOH Investment Research Service, for those people who don't know, I spent uh, about 10 years on the buy side as an equities analyst. I was also writing online throughout that period. And I decided in April of 2021 to leave the job I was at and to start an online research service where I basically take everything I was doing in my day-to-day job and now deliver that to subscribers as 
uh, write-ups every Monday and every other Thursday. And, you know, kind of one of the key features of the service is there's complete portfolio transparency about what I own, uh, the, the weightings of the positions. Anytime I make changes, I disclose that to the subscribers before I do so, quarterly updates on returns, et cetera. And, you know, there's a growing list of companies that I've done deep dives on, some of which have have made their way onto the watch list or in the portfolio. And as we were kind of talking about before we jumped on, it's just kind of a recurring, you know, uh, kind of portfolio manager view of of how to make decision-making with, with each passing day. So it's been a lot of fun to do it. And yeah, I'm incredibly thankful as always to everybody who subscribed. Yeah. And what uh, company, what companies that we had previously, we covered Airbnb on here. They've done a write up on and Netflix. Uh, so check those out if you like this episode. Yeah, we yeah, are. We got, uh, the, we got the Netflix one, Justin. Uh, we, we front ran. Oh Disney, yeah. But then yes. he, uh, yes. he didn't stick around too long on that one. <laughs> it was, uh, I think good timing on that one. That one did get uh, a lot of listens. Uh, Netflix was in the news, uh, financial news pretty frequently in that time. All right. And today we were talking about, I guess, a, uh, I guess you call them a peer to Netflix potentially. And it's Roku. Uh, and I think he posted a chart this morning of the volatility over the last couple of years, but it's been a wild ride for shareholders. So I kind of want to start there. Can you describe, I guess, the current situation with Roku? What's happened lately? What's led them to where they're at today? Sure. Just to put numbers on that chart, I, I think roughly speaking, we're talking about just north of 50 billion was enterprise value at the peak. And today, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's six or seven, somewhere in that range. So it's down, you know, approaching 90% peak to trough. So it's been uh, a very significant move. And I, I was talking to my buddy, Bill Brewster earlier about coming on here. And I was just saying, you know, it's one of those names. It's kind of funny. If you, you didn't have any, any reference to the stock price and you were just looking at the business, like there's clearly been deceleration here as I'll get into in a second, but it's just one of those names where the stock price move is so much bigger than in my opinion, at least, than, than what's happened in the business. So obviously, if things are crazy on the on the upside, then you can have some crazy moves on the downside. But it's just funny how market and, and business can, can really diverge from each other at times. Um, you know, my kind of high-level view as I look back over the past five years is you go back to Q2 of 17, Roku had about 15 million active, active accounts. You fast forward to today, Q2 22, it's up more than 4x to about 63 million accounts. Uh, in addition, you've seen an increase in, increase in usage among those accounts. Average account now streams about three and a half hours a day compared to two and a half hours a day five years ago. So as a result of those factors, over the trailing 12 months, uh, our stream on the platform were 79.1 billion, which is up more than 6x from Q217. So obviously very, very significant growth. The other really important thing to note is that Roku has been much more effective in terms of their monetization on a per hour basis. So if you compare it to about five years ago, plat platform revenues per hour of viewership has increased from roughly 1.2 cents per hour, so about a penny, to 3.3 cents per hour. So you know the combination of those factors is this Q217, when platform revenues were just shy of $150 million a year, in Q2 of 22, there were $2.6 billion. So up nearly 20x, which uh, I think we can we can all agree over a five-year period is a pretty impressive growth. Um, yeah. Now that's that that said, you know the pandemic was a tailwind as as we've seen with a lot of businesses. Now we're dealing with a bit of a hangover, and and Roku is also being impacted by macro. So I think the clearest way to to see the current pressures is 
the Q3 guide calls for something like low single digit revenue growth, which for this business, you know, it was, it was consistently ticking off 30, 40, 50% growth for many, many quarters over the past five years. So it's a number that seemed kind of unfathomable as you look back 12 plus months ago. So, you know, the market's very concerned about what that means. OPEX is growing significantly faster than revenues in the interim or at this time. And, you know, there's questions about saturation as we'll get into. The company's been very successful in, in the U.S. and North America, but there's questions about whether or not this is going to be a global business or not. We've got a lot of, we got a lot of questions on Twitter about kind of the manufacturing side, maybe the supply chain. Can you talk about how that's hurt them lately? Um, and maybe some, someone asked whether or not they should own the TVs themselves. Do you think that's the right way to go? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Netflix, when they reported, uh, I guess it was probably Q1. When they reported Q1, they kind of laid out some factors for their slowdown and in subgrowth. And one of the things they pointed to was uh, smart TV sales globally. And I think Roku has uh, kind of mirrored those comments in terms of there, there might have been some pull forward. And obviously, if you buy a, a new TV, you, you don't necessarily need one 12 months later. So on the back end, and there's probably also some supply chain issues there. So, you know, unit sales have, have been a little bit more challenged. And then in the case of Roku specifically, we have to remember, of course, that they have kind of the smart TV operating system business, which is a bigger and bigger piece of the pie. But they also still generate a lot of, of revenue from selling you know, the sticks and the dongles that you plug into the back of your TV to make it essentially a smart TV. And that's been uh, under a fair amount of pressure lately. I think unit sales were down 16% year over year in Q2 for the sticks and dongles. And the other thing that Roku has done is in order to kind of defend their position in that space, because it still drives a meaningful amount of, of kind of the streaming hours, they've, they've held on pricing and, and been aggressive in the face of COGS inflation. So you know, last quarter, I, I think the trailing 12-month number on that side of the business was a negative 22% gross margin. Um, the idea being that they pick it up on kind of the platform side as we'll get into, but they, they've seen pretty significant cost pressure there. On the issue of owning a manufacturer, I think that's a harder one to say. You know, given the current structure that they've had, they have, I think they've shown pretty well they can make it work in terms of the relationships that they have with certain OEMs. Um, you know, that said, yeah, they're, they're, there's a couple of different parts of this value chain and that's not even getting into the, the content supplier side of it all. There, there's the OEMs, there's someone like a Roku or, you know, the other kind of OS players who don't manufacture their own TVs. There's, there's some people that do both of those things like Samsung. And then you also have the retailer component of this all, which is, I, I don't think it was a really big part of the story if you go back a couple of years, but you've heard more and more, especially lately with uh, Comcast and Charter who have a, a joint venture in the US, they've had some discussions with Walmart about essentially letting them kind of be part of the economics of, of what happens beyond the sale of the, of the device. So it seems like some of that stuff is kind of evolving and changing. So it's obviously really important for Roku to, to continue to think about how they're positioned within that value chain. Yeah, we're going to talk about how they can defend and grow that position. But I think for a little bit of context, let's talk why the business has been so successful as opposed to what they're kind of planning for the future to give some listeners some context. So as you mentioned, uh, platform revenue is 20x over five years. And I think I, when I calculated, I said something like 5x for the last three years. So really, really, really impressive. But I think the mystery is how they actually make money because people pull up the Roku operating system and they think, oh, it's free. 
I just paid for this thing and I got this remote and I'm watching TV on here. Why is Roku making money off of that? So what are the revenue lines? And um, I guess when you research the business, kind of what stood out to you? Sure. So what's happening here at a high level, as, as we all know, especially in a market like the US, we're seeing a pretty significant shift from you know, your live TVs over towards streaming. I mean, especially on the entertainment side, less so on kind of live content, news and sports, but on the entertainment side of, of, of programming, especially amongst young people, there's been a massive shift from, from linear to streaming. And, and you see that in the Nielsen data with, I think it's now at roughly 35% of all TV time is streaming and that's up 500 base, more than 500 basis points a year over year. So, you know, management would say, and I think rightly so, that this is a structural trend that it eventually ends in a place where that number is a lot higher than 35%. So they've had a tailwind there. You know, obviously that impacts both the accounts growth and, and the hours viewed growth. So those, those naturally drive you know, engagement on the platform. And then in terms of how you monetize that engagement, the main ways are uh, when someone is on a Roku TV and they go to sign up for, let's say Paramount Plus, if they sign up on the platform, Roku receives a distribution share. Um, as, as part of that process. The other thing that they've negotiated as part of a lot of these agreements, and we'll get into this on the Roku channel or TRC, is they've negotiated agreements where you know, they either have a cut of the ad revenues for something like an AVOD service, or they get the company to contribute content that is available on TRC, which is you know, the platform that they kind of manage. So, so long story short, They've just driven overall usage of the platform in a major way, and they slowly become more effective at at monetizing that usage. And then the one other thing would be, you know, they do branded ad placements, basically. So if you turn on your TV and it's a Roku device, they have these kind of billboard type things. Someone could could buy placement there or, you know, on one of the buttons to promote a new movie um, or, you know, one of the buttons on the screen, I should say, to promote a movie. And then on the actual remote, those those are also branded placements, whether it's Netflix or Disney Plus or whoever. So it's a couple of different opportunities for them to 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 kind of show their value at. I think an interesting one they announced recently was something called the Buzz, which if they get people to to start looking at this, it's a way for them to try to basically show you what's new and what's on these competing services. And you know, to the extent that you can do that well, you can obviously appreciate how that could lend itself to the bidding for that placement, essentially, advertising opportunities. So there's a number of ways that they, they, they rightly can, can generate or add value for their partners and then generate revenues around that. What do you think of the Roku channel generally? And then maybe as a customer, uh, as a customer, I don't know if you're a customer, but what do you think of it content wise? And then what do you think the future could be there? You know, it's interesting. I think I think there's a couple of different ways to think about it. Let's start with, with one, which is just purely the statistics that they've given recently, which is Roku channel is now a top five channel on the platform in terms of engagement, which is impressive. Um, you know, on the other side of the coin, if you see, I saw some third-party data, I think it was from Harris X, that shows by their estimates that Tubi and Pluto, which are the closest comp to something like TRC, it's not even... It's, it's not ad supported in the sense that people pay a lower fee like most people are used to. These are these are fast. They're free. So you just you just literally are only monetizing ads. From the data that they have, they they seem to show that Tubi and Pluto might be about 50% larger than than Roku. So I, I think TRC has been in the right 
place in terms of offering something that is clearly much cheaper in terms of dollars spent than the SVOD tiers that kind of led the streaming wars, or at least from Netflix's perspective, for sure. Um, whether or not they're they're doing a great great job in the right you know peer group of of Tubi and Pluto, to me is a little bit less clear. And you know, from a business perspective, I've just always found it interesting. And we can talk about original content, but even the idea of having the Roku channel, you know, your, your partners, your key suppliers are these content companies. And you know, to some extent, you're competing with them for engagement now as you start going down this route. And, you know, I, I, I don't have a great answer for why they did it, or at least I don't know their thinking. One of my guesses is that they did it because they thought it could be supplemental to their core business. And maybe they even had questions about, you know, the real strength of their core business over time. To the extent that they think it's successful because of what they bring in terms of distribution, I've just always thought that that way of viewing the world kind of muddies what your business is. If you're an advertising business, that placement is not a free lunch. That's placement that could have been used that you're now giving up to support your own service. So you're kind of you're kind of crossing lines as you start doing that. The other argument that I think could hold some merit is that TRC is a way for them to kind of demonstrate their ability to more effectively monetize ad inventory. Management has been, lately management has been uh, pretty positive on that actually being the case. Um, I, I think the actions of the other content companies would make you question whether or not that's actually true. But I, I should add the kicker there that you know, even if it even if it was the case, you could hire CPMs on a you know after t- after take rate basis. I, I do think there's some inertia there, given that these major media companies have sales teams and the like, and they have their own methodology for going out and you know if someone's making that decision, it's kind of against their own job <laughs> in order to to kind of to to sub that out to Roku. So there's a lot of moving parts there. We can we can drill in on any number of them, but I. I think it was a somewhat interesting idea. I think shareholders from the jump have been cautious about Roku going out and spending a ton of money on original content. And I think management, the commentary on the last call, at least to me, suggests that management is 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 hearing those concerns and and will not be making that move. So it'll be very comparable to Tubi and Pluto, where it's just going to be a bunch of content that is not necessarily exclusive. It's a lot older content. It's you know, it's just different than what you're going to see on HBO Max, Netflix, Disney Plus in terms of the new exciting content. Yeah. All right. Do we want to, let's say the international expansion one, Ryan and talk the YouTube and Netflix negotiating leverage, because that I think fits into the, the Roku yeah. channel competition first. What I guess. So you talked a little bit there about that, their ad business and that times is kind of seems like a point of contention where you've mentioned that. Well, let's start with let's start with Netflix and YouTube. They're two biggest suppliers, I believe, um, are Netflix and YouTube, or the two biggest contributors in terms of engagement. Do they generate any revenue from them? And I guess, do you think they, if they're if if it isn't material now, do you think they could at any point? Yeah. So just to give it some numbers, I I, I think they've changed the wording. As of two or three years ago, those two apps accounted for the majority of engagement on the platform, YouTube and Netflix. And the wording in the 10K from my reading wasn't entirely clear. It's definitely immaterial. I don't know if the number is zero, but it's an immaterial contributor to their 
to their revenue. They're not taking any of the, you know, for the clearest, the clearest example, they're not taking any of the ad inventory that's on, that's on YouTube that people are consuming on their TVs. So yeah, two platforms that account for a very significant percentage of their, of their engagement are driving very little monetization. Um, you know, in terms of if that can change, it's a very difficult question. I think that for me, this is where I, I bring a certain biases investment given I've, I've followed and owned a company like Comcast, a pay TV distributor for a long time. And I've followed and owned content companies for a long time. And I've seen in the pay TV business in the U S how the leading content providers can just take all the economics effectively. And Comcast has really no pushback because the day that ESPN goes dark on their service is the day that they lose a large number of customers. And, you know, Roku is in somewhat of a similar position. Um, they've, they've pushed back on, on some big name apps, most notably Peacock and, and HBO Max, kind of around the time of their launch. And they did get some concessions, it seems mostly in terms of content for TRC as opposed to less explicitly, less explicitly a take rate. Um, but Peacock is very different than Netflix or YouTube <laughs> in terms of, of, of your willingness to not have that be on your platform for days, weeks, months at a time. So I, I just think it's a very difficult position and, you know, they've probably rightly chosen up to this point to, to focus their battles elsewhere. And on top of that, we're seeing both Disney plus, which I guess would maybe be the third most popular on the platform, maybe fourth. I don't know Hulu could be more popular. Um, and Netflix, both releasing the advertising tiers at the end of this year. Are they going to, because we, we saw Netflix partner with Microsoft and we saw Disney Plus partner with the Trade Desk. Does that leave Roku out to dry, even though a lot of these ads are going to be played on the Roku platform? Or could they benefit maybe over the long run? Um, I guess it's hard to tell. There's so many moving parts there, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, the short answer is I don't know. And it was, a, you know, it was a, in my write-up, I as you guys know, I think you may have even said this to me in, in Twitter DMs that this write-up for me was, was less conclusive than a lot of the things I've written because I I think there are open questions here that I personally don't want to be closed-minded on. And I think there's ways that I could I could potentially be proven wrong or see a different, you know, different version of the story than than what I see today. Um, I haven't heard any anything in the press about these upcoming launches of these AVOD services from Netflix and Disney, which are, are coming, you know, we're like a month out now. So they're coming soon. These things need to be settled. I haven't heard anything, but if, if Roku managed to negotiate a pretty meaningful cut of, of the inventory or a meaningful cut of, of what's delivered to the customers in terms of the revenue share, I think that would force you or force me to kind of, to, to reassess some of the conclusions that I've made. So for me, for me, it's currently a, wait and see. I'll be very curious to see if if that relationship changes from kind of what it is today. This episode is brought to you by ourselves. If you're hearing this now, we know you're a Chit Chat Money listener, but if you want to get more than just our free episodes, you can become a Chit Chat Money Plus subscriber. Within the subscription, members get access to our weekly not-so-deep-dive episodes, our monthly episodes detailing one of the holdings in our investment fund, Arch Capital, and then they also get written work, so newsletters and research files to go along with each not-so-deep-dive episode. Am I missing anything? We should talk about the themes that we do each month. So each month we choose a theme based on whatever we want. So last month we did video games. This month we're doing housing. 
Next month, we're doing engineering software, I believe. And then the following month, we're doing website and e-commerce software. We choose those because it's, you know, a great way to investigate a different industry. And if you want to subscribe to CCM Plus, go directly through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or through the link that will be in each one of our show notes. It is only $5 a month. You heard that right. $5 a month. Perfect to try out. If you like what we have to offer, we hope you'll subscribe. Now, a big thing on getting negotiating leverage is international expansion. And outside of Mexico and Canada, which have been quite successful, I mean, Mexico has been very successful. Um, it's kind of been a dud. Uh, why, why do you think that is? And is there a potential for that to change? Because if I'm looking at it as a, a potential investor, if they really you know, capture the European market, that could give them a lot of negotiating leverage versus Netflix, who is huge in, in that region. Yeah, it's funny. When I first... The first time I looked at Roku was probably a handful of years ago, let's say three years ago. And one of the first things that stood out to me when I did that work was when I looked at the 10K, the, the P&L for the international segment. I expected to see that Roku was spending, you know, not insane amounts of money, but let's say $50 million a year to, to go and try to win in these other regions. And obviously there's you know, how the costs are accounted for between U.S. and international could, could be part of the explanation. But if you look 2017 to 21, Roku's international segment has broken out in the 10K actually made a little bit of money. Whereas a long-term investor or a business owner here, you would think the argument could be made for them losing a significant amount of money over that period as they put people on the ground and, and try to you know, gain some scale. Um, you know, from where we stand today, from the data I've seen, I look at uh, a research firm called Conviva. Roku isn't a top five player in Europe or in Latin America. And they have, you know, mid-single-digit market share in those regions. And the people that they're competing with are, you know, Google, Amazon, Samsung, like very, very strong competitors who, um, to the extent that bulls want to argue that Roku has a defensive position in the United States, which they've done a very good job defending over the past couple of years, that, you know, they call that that 30, 35% market share. I think you have to flip the question and ask, how does, how does that look as you think about trying to, you know, take down the incumbents in, in Europe or LATAM, wherever it may be. So I think that's a, it's a tough slog. Um, they've had success in Canada and Mexico, and I think that's, that should be applauded. But I think to the extent that they do it elsewhere around the world, at a very minimum, it's something that would likely take many, many years. So I, I'm certainly personally not too optimistic on what that looks like, which, you know, getting back to the Started this conversation, you know, you you start to get to a scary place if if you're at 60 million accounts and as they've said recently, vast majority are in the U.S. or in North America at least. You know, you're getting closer and closer to something that looks like penetration. So uh, that that can be a problem for the growth algorithm. Okay, that kind of leads me to ask one of the questions we saw on Twitter, which is basically do consumers actually care what their TV operating system is? Like, do you think they <laughs> Roku has any sort of sustainable advantage? That's the ultimate question here. Yeah, I think, I think there's certainly, there certainly are consumers who care. I think Roku has fairly established a brand image as um, an intuitive, easy to use product with all the major apps, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, that's as someone who has, gone around and stayed at Airbnbs, uh, that is not standard across all TVs. Not all TVs have what you consider the five, 10 major apps. 
So, you know, Roku has all the major apps. It's a very easy to use interface. It's generally sold on low cost, you know, high quality TVs, I'd say, given the price point that you're paying. So I, I think they do have a bit of a brand, you know, how, how meaningful is that in someone's purchase decision? I'm a little bit less sure. Obviously, it probably makes more of a difference if you already have two or three Roku TVs in your house, it would probably make more of a difference than if you've never owned them before. Um, you know, it's funny, I was walking around Costco here recently and I, I noticed, and maybe it's just my local Costco, I'd be surprised if that's the case, but I didn't see a single Roku TV. And it just, it just kind of surprised me in terms of, you know, their ability to defend themselves on the position that they've built really in many ways led by, by price, I'd argue, or that's certainly been a major component of, of their value prop to the customer. I wonder how defensible that is. And again, getting back to the, to the Comcast, you know, charter Walmart discussion, if, if Walmart can share in the economics more fully on the back end, that could presumably give, give the ability to be more competitive on pricing on the front end on the hardware. So um, I'm up in the air on that one. I'm, I'm not entirely sold, but you do have market share data that, that shows Roku has been very successful at defending their position. So I don't know what you totally attribute that to, but there's no doubt in my mind that they've been successful at that in the U.S. Yeah, it makes me nervous when you're competing with Amazon, especially when you're selling on their own site uh, as a low-cost provider. And I think this sort of example, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're thinking about it this way where you have, say, I don't know, like the Roku's negotiating with Netflix. And for some reason, they decided, okay, we're not at a good point. We're going to take Netflix off of Roku. If that happened, one, a lot of consumers would be upset. And two, they would be able to buy an Amazon Fire TV, uh, whatever, plug-in for 30 bucks and replace it right away. I think that is kind of the point here. Where even compared, it's, it, In my mind, uh, it, do you think it's worse than what it was with, say, Comcast and pay TV because... You don't have that kind of set-top box monopoly um, that's yeah. differentiating yourself. Yeah. Well, again, to, you know, to the extent that these agreements are global, which I'm not, I'm not sure if they are or not, but you know, think about what it does to, does to Roku as they think about these markets where they're fighting with the incumbents. I mean, it, it's one thing to say, "Hey, we're pulling Netflix in the U.S.," and that's pretty painful for both parties, but manageable for Netflix. If you're Roku and you're launching in new markets, and now you're taking that logo off of off of your boxes. Uh, that is a very bad place to be. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, you know, as, as they sit down in those negotiations, I, my sense would be that as you talk about, you know, the handful of leading players, which again, account for a very significant percentage of, of overall engagement. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about consolidation potentially in a minute. I, I just think it's a very difficult conversation to have. Again, very similar to what a traditional MVPD dealt with as they sat down with, you know, a Disney or an NBC Universal. Oh yeah, I guess let's combine these two questions we had here because uh, they're essentially asking the same thing. So you mentioned the write-up and I thought it was a really good point that the new video services are at a disadvantage versus the established players. I guess YouTube's its own beast, but versus say Netflix, if they're not paying that take rate to Roku, the economics are just better for them. Um, maybe describe what that is. And also... If you're long Roku, do you theoretically have to be short Netflix because you don't want them to continue to gain market share within CTV or just TV watching in general on the Roku platform? Yeah, on the first point, I mean, here's a pretty simplistic way to think about it. Let's, let's work under the assumption that 
you know, each hour of viewership is, is the same in terms of consumers' willingness to pay, the cost per hour is the same to produce that content, et cetera, et cetera. You have, you have service A, a that generates a billion dollars a year in revenue. I have service B that generates a billion dollars a year in revenue, but I'm kicking, you know, 15% to Roku as a take rate. So my, my net number is 850 and you're working off of a billion. And, you know, that makes it, that makes it pretty difficult for me to actually compete over time, assuming I don't have advantages elsewhere in terms of IP ability to produce more effectively per dollar spend, et cetera. So, that's kind of how I think about it from that regard. And obviously, as you think about potential consolidation, you know, that gives player A an ability to pay a price for player B that for a public market investor or someone who's not going to get that benefit from the purchase, that gives them the ability to pay a price that that may not make sense otherwise. So that's kind of what I meant in that regard and how it could potentially, you know, it's one factor among many in terms of, of thinking about scale advantages and disadvantages across these various services. But it's a it's an important one as it relates to Roku. You know, on the on the long rec Roku short Netflix thought, I I think it might it might be uh, a bridge too far or just a tad too smart in terms of you know for one, as I said, Roku is something like 35 percent market share in in North America or in the U.S. and you know obviously a much smaller number as we talk about globally. So. Netflix, to the extent that they actually were forced to share some of the economics, it, it would apply to you know a relatively small percentage of of their actual usage. And the other thing to consider is, you know, when when someone buys a new Roku TV and simply logs into a to a an already active account, you know, Roku's not not getting paid on that. They're only getting paid to the extent that they're involved in kind of the activation. So, and you know, as time goes by. Uh, a very large number of people who buy new TVs or new devices are, are already going to have, you know, accounts that they're simply logging into. So um, I, I don't think even to the extent that Roku managed to to start commanding more of the economics, I, I don't know how much it would move the needle for Netflix or at least not in a massive way. It, okay. So that, you, you raise a good point there, which is the longer that, I guess a lot of these streaming services are around, the more likely someone already has an account, which means subscription activations will probably become a more muted, I would assume, percentage of Roku's uh, platform revenue. So my thought would be they're going to go towards advertising. You mentioned that the Roku's management team thinks they have higher CPMs, better advertising business than others. If you are one of the content providers, let's take... Hulu ad supported, for example, or Disney plus ad supported. What's the, like, would you feel encouraged to give any of your ad inventory to Roku or if, if that's the case, if the CPMs are really higher or would you still try to keep them in house? I mean, it's certainly logical, right? I mean, if my, if my net number is higher than it would be otherwise after accounting for a take rate, it would certainly seem logical to do that now. But as I was trying to kind of point out earlier, the person who's making that decision may have a different calculus than than you or I would as outside business owner, because that decision may mean that their job is less important than it was otherwise. Right. Because today they may be responsible for filling that ad inventory or signing an agreement with, you know, the trade desk or whoever else would be involved with 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 that process, as opposed to saying, "Hey, we're outsourcing this to Roku. You know, we we get 105 percent of what we got previously, so this is what we should be doing." 
um, you know, that may put a little bit less work on their desk and may impact their their comp or even if they have a job. <laughs> so um, I think that might be a relevant consideration, just the the sales force and, and kind of the, the teams that have been built behind these major media companies. I'm sure there's some shifts happening internally, but it, it's probably fairly slowly moving if I had to guess. Um, but yeah, that, to your point, like it, it just seems to me, I mean, even in terms of competition, right? Like how it, it kind of goes to what I was saying a moment ago about a streaming service that pays, pays the tax versus not paying the tax. Roku's ability to, to license content that is identical to Tubi or to Pluto, if they actually monetize it more effectively, they should be able to, you know, they have more money to work with on the same amount of engagement usage, whatever it may be. So that advantage should, should poke through in some way. Um, again, I don't know how real that is today. I, I take, I take management's comments on, on that with, with the grain of salt for sure. Yeah. Here's now we've seemed a bit bearish, I think on our discussion here, but I think maybe one other reason to be, or two other reasons to be bullish. I'm interested to hear, see your thoughts on this. Cause I know you follow the industry closely. They have with the Roku channel as well, potentially that, you know, operating system advantage where they can promote stuff to people and they maybe have more data on the customer. And second, that management has hyped up, um, I guess hyped up, yeah, hyped up is probably the right word, that advertising dollars are on a lag with usage. And that even though, even if say usage for CTV doesn't even grow over the next three years, you'll still see growth as it's kind of on a three-year lag. Any thoughts on that or whether that could be beneficial to Roku? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, as a broader point, I think it just, it just gets to the overall growth of the platform in terms of number of users, you know, uh, activity per user, et cetera. There's, there's certainly a very strong tailwind on a global basis. There's a very strong tailwind, I'd argue, for both of those things to continue happening. And, you know, for me, one of the hardest things as I've worked through this, and it's very bullish in my opinion, I just struggle to, to really explain it, is that is what I indicated earlier, this idea of an hour of, of engagement being monetized from a penny five years ago to, to three cents today. I mean, it's a massive right. increase. The, the ARPUs over that period of time have gone from, you know, something like $9 on a trailing 12 month basis in mid 2016 to, to roughly $44. It's gone up 5X in terms of average revenue per user. So they've seen significant traction in terms of their ability to, to more effectively monetize the average Roku user. I think what's partly gotten muddied in all this is like a lot of these businesses, the OPEX has, has also grown fairly significantly. And, and now that revenue growth has slowed down, that's, that's hurt them in a big way. But you're, you're seeing that pretty much across the board with names like this. The other thing is just understanding what really is driving that growth. And I think there's a real question, you know, how much of that is attributable to the fact that there were a number of high profile services that launched in, you know, late 20, early 21, that had very good reason to spend. And if consolidation happens, what does that spend look like? I don't think that's, I don't think that stuff really goes away, but maybe it was at a level that is, is higher than might prove sustainable. Um, but again, to the extent that they can deliver eyeballs to these different services and, you know, as you were saying a minute ago on the idea of everybody already having an account, you know, there, there might be churn and other things that I don't know if Roku would monetize from that person reactivating the account, but they certainly could monetize in terms of selling the advertisement that gets somebody back to that home screen to reactivate. So I think 
they can really leverage their position in a lot of ways. But I continue to think that the best way to do that is is, is in terms of advertising, less so in terms of some of the, the the divergence that they've had with Roku Channel in terms of you know money and probably more importantly, in my opinion, management management's attention. What do you think of management, Anthony Wood, CEO? What what do you think of him? What do you think of their, I guess, capital allocation so far? Yeah, I'd probably, uh, I'm not too set on these conclusions. I feel fairly decent about management, I'd say. You know, I've read a couple of things about Anthony Wood that make me slightly concerned. Um, I'm forgetting his name now, the guy who who was at Roku, who basically ran a lot of these negotiations, especially with with big names like Peacock and HBO Max, and was a very important part of the team from everything I've read. Um, you know, I think the thinking was that he was probably in line to be the next CEO. And it was made clear that Anthony Wood didn't want to go anywhere. And he basically decided to leave the company. So, you know, that, that, that struck me as a, a pretty important person at the company who, who decided to leave because I guess from their perspective, they were not giving enough responsibility or enough of, you know, the ability to really move up in the organization from where they were at. So I think that's a little bit concerning when you lose somebody like that, who's so high profile and so important to the core of, what I think the business may need to be successful over time. But in general, I don't have a big knock on the things they've done. You know, even the, like we were talking about before we hopped on, even like the smart appliance stuff, I, you know, I, I see how people can laugh at it and think it's not a good direction for them to go in. You know, I also kind of think it's small potatoes and that you can test things like this and, and it can still be, you know, a reasonable thing to do. Okay. I guess we have maybe a couple more questions, but five years from now, do you think Netflix and YouTube combined will have as more or less engagement as a percentage of overall streaming time? Wow, that's a good question. Hard one though. <laughs> that is a very good one. Um, if we're assuming that neither of those two players, especially Netflix um, is involved in any sort of M and a, I'd say their share is lower. Um, I, th- I think you've pretty clearly seen. And from the data I've seen recently, you know, especially the fast services, as I said earlier, you've seen a lot of success for the Plutos, the Tubis, even even Roku Channel, and obviously, you know, other services like HBO Max and Peacock are, you know, they're obviously starting from a small base. It, it's hard to go down from zero. You can really only go up or at least stay flat. Um, <laughs> but I think they've, you know, they've shown more and more, especially in key markets like the U.S., that they're they're going to be real players. Um, the question in my mind will be, as I've as I've written on. Disney and Netflix and a couple of these names is, you know, if you're not going to be a global player, what's kind of the end state for, for your content in terms of whether you license international markets, whether you find a way to combine with somebody else to get scale. There's a real open question there. Um, So we'll see, but outside of M and A, I think it's, it's likely that both of those companies have a smaller overall share of the pie. Yeah. And I guess it's TBD on the Netflix ad tier, because if that's uber successful, maybe, maybe that trend reverses and they take some of that, but I guess the the free tiers are a totally different uh, animal as well. Yeah, yeah it's right. an interesting question to ask as you as you have gone from, you know, where Netflix was at, whatever, a couple of years ago, we'll say when they really were were still stamping their foot down on this that will never have ads. Now you've moved here. For me, for me, from what I see in both the Nielsen data and other data sources, I it seems to me that ad supported especially has taken a good amount of engagement share over the past you know, year or two. And the fast services have taken a 
significant amount of engagement share over the past year or two. So you, I, I think it is an open question, one to truly be considered by these companies is whether or not a fast service should be part of their strategy moving forward. And fa- fast um, is just free ad supported? Free, free ad supported. Okay. So it, it might be you know very limited in terms of what content's on there, may have a high ad load. You know, there might be certain product features that are uh, commensurate with the fact that it's free. But I do think it's, it's, it's worthwhile for these companies to consider whether or not that has any, you know, any place for their business. Okay. I think last question here, what do you think of the valuation? The market cap, I believe is just below 7 billion today. I think yeah, it's gone below $50 a share. I mean, it's totally unbombed out. Yeah. I mean, I think they have, if I'm not mistaken, I think they have 2 billion in net cash, something like that. If I'm, if, yeah, I think that's around right. Yeah, I was looking at Match's balance share before we hopped on here, so I could be getting <laughs> could be getting these mixed up. Um, yeah, so enterprise value is you know whatever six billion dollars a day, something like that. Um, you're paying two times annualized platform revenues, which is certainly a lot cheaper than what this traded at a couple of years ago. Um, you know, peak TTM margins, EBIT margins when things were going well were low double digits. So if you you know apply that to kind of the current revenue base, you get something in the 300 400 million dollar range um so yeah it doesn't it doesn't look nearly as expensive as it as it did six or 12 months ago um you know for for me the real question would be you know whether or not you think that revenue growth can really continue which is is going to have to be led by i think international growth i mean accounts growth but really international international growth will have to be a lever at some point just as a result of saturation then the other one, as I as I mentioned before, is this this ARPU component of, of the equation. You know, you got forty four bucks a day selling the stock. I think you probably got to have some thoughts on on where that goes over time. And I'm personally, I'm just not well versed enough yet to to make a strong argument for if that's you know at sixty bucks in five years or if it's at a hundred bucks in five years. Um, so I think you need some thoughts there. Um, yeah, and I think the other thing is, as I kind of mentioned before, just keeping an eye on on the developments that are happening now with two major, two major AVOD launches coming in the U.S. or for two of the leading players in the U.S. over the course of the next, pretty sure both of them launch by year end. So, you know, in the next thirty to sixty days, something like that. Um, I'm very curious to hear whether or not whether or not Roku is is part of the economics there. And you know, management, as far as I remember, management has been saying that in order to launch these services, there would need to be uh, basically like new agreements with these, with these companies. It, it wouldn't fit under the umbrella of what they agreed to previously. So we should hear some noise about this in the near future. And if, if, if Roku, you know, is commanding a significant cut of, of the pie, then for me, it's going to require, you know, a reassessment on, on what I've concluded so far. All right. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. If listeners enjoyed this, check the link. I'm sure we'll have it in the bio to Alex's writing. He's done. He did a comprehensive Roku deep dive and he's covered plenty of companies that uh, are not on our podcast. So there's, there's more to it than just what, what he's talked about on here. Uh, that is all the questions we have. Uh, right. You're, you're not. Okay. Um, so thank you, Alex, for coming on. We got to throw our disclosure on here. Brett and I are fi- not financial advisors. So anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you guys next time. 
Hey, Simon, we wanted to ask you a few questions about seven investing so listeners could get an idea of what they're getting. What inspired you to start the company and what exactly is seven investing? Well, hey, Ryan, thanks again for having me. You know, we, from years of working in the investing industry, it was inspired by conversations with people that would just always have kind of the same negative perception of the stock market, right? It's, it's too hard, or I don't have time for this, or this is stacked against me. And those conversations kind of led me to say, hey, we need to create a site that actually does inspire people to say, you can take control of your financial future. You can invest in stocks. You can find good stocks to buy and hold for long periods of time. And at the end of the day, too, we know that everybody is different. Um, we don't believe that there is one stock that fits for everyone, right? Maybe you're a, a dividend-loving, you know, paycheck-cashing uh, income investor that might want an option that's going to be a lower-risk dividend-paying stock, especially right now with the economy being what it is. Uh, and then there are other people might say, hey, you know, I'm ready to hold on for 20 or 30 years. I want to take some swings for the fences. Let's go after those high-growth opportunities. And so I, I said, you know, this would be something that would be even more fun rather than just doing it educational and, as, and by myself. I said, what if I brought together a team of seven advisors, all with a diverse background and a diverse perspective of the stock market? So we could uncover more stones and look at a bunch of different stocks with a bunch of different investing styles and a whole bunch of different industries. And so seven investing is, is kind of the, uh, the genesis of all of those that we started in, uh, in March of 2020. And we said, let's look at a whole bunch of different stocks. Let's do the legwork of the analysis and let's present our seven favorite actionable ideas every month for investors to choose from. And let's start the conversation about which of these stocks is right for you and which one might be the right fit for your portfolio, knowing that investing is a very personal thing. All right. If you are a subscriber of 7investing, what do you get? Can you give an overview of what subscribers get? On the very first of every month, Brett, we release our seven new recommendations. So we are uh, coming up on October 1st here, at least in the recording of this. And, you know, on October 1st, we'll release seven recommendation reports. Some of them will be low risk. Some of them will be high risk. Some of them will be biotech. Some of them will be financial services. We run the full gamut. And as a member, you get immediate access to all of the new reports. But you also get access to all of our old recommendations as well. We track all of them in real time on our scorecard at 7investing.com slash recommendations. And we also provide company updates on all of those previous recommendations as well. We check in on how things are going. And sometimes we even see red flags that we think people should be aware of. There's risks for any opportunity at the time that you recommend it. And sometimes it's really willing, it's really, it's really needed for investors to kind of understand the risk and reward relationship. And then the last part of it is in addition to issuing new recommendations and providing updates on them is we know that this is a long-term journey. We know that investing is something that we want to take uh, years, if not decades, to accomplish whatever we want to get to as, as the end goal. And so we always, every month, make it a point to be very available for our subscribers to ask us questions. We have a members-only call uh, right in the middle of every single month. We have a community discussion forum that we that we have available 24-7 to not only talk to our advisors, but also other investors. I think that's one of the key differentiators for 7investing is that, you know, we know this is a long-term journey. We know it's a very personal thing. We know they're going to have questions along the way. We don't want to just broadcast stock picks and disappear. We want to be here with you uh, throughout this entire journey. And you mentioned, so seven recommendations each month. Sometimes those might be repeats, but obviously there's a lot of companies now in the seven investing universe. So how 
do members get a grasp on the the advisor's conviction around certain ideas like which ones do do they are do they have a way of knowing which uh whether advisors like certain ones more that's the most common question we've gotten actually since we started is what's your favorite ideas right now you know we've done the diligence on almost 200 unique companies now and put them on the scorecard and people would say hey this is too much to keep up with how do i even know where to start and so we've kind of uh, evolved as, as a company. Uh, one thing that we've started doing is best buys every month. Each advisor gets to pick any of their or another advisor's previous recommendations and put the flag on it that says, this is my best buy for October. And we publish those for subscribers. The other thing that we've started doing is issuing conviction ratings on companies that are also right there on the school card. So if you see a previous recommendation, we go everything from potential sell which is the most negative flag we can put on a stock to strong buy, which is the most positive bullish flag that we can mark things with. And you can filter through all of those to really quickly see here's some of our favorite opportunities. And we've taken this even one step further now, Ryan, which is we've created a strong buy portfolio where every quarter now we've gone ahead and self-selected as a team through a pretty methodical process, our 20 favorite ideas, our 20 highest scoring companies that we've collectively come up with, our favorites of the entire scorecard. And we put these into what we're calling a strong buy portfolio that we publish each quarter, also available as an added benefit for no extra charge for seven investing members. All right, last question here. What does it cost to become a seven investing subscriber? Uh, and as a, you know, we'll talk about, or we have talked about before, if you're a listener, use code money to get $100 off your annual subscription. That's right. Yeah, we do have a monthly option. You know, you can come in and check out the entire scorecard for a month just to see what you're looking at for $49 a month. Uh, but our most popular plan is actually the annual option because it's at a discount to that. Uh, in fact, we've got a discount on the discount, like you mentioned, Brett. Uh, $399 for the year is our is our annual option price. But if you use money, the chit chat money promo code, it's down to $300. So you're basically getting the the subscription for half price if you sign up for the annual offer with that promo code. That does not expire after the first year. As long as you remain an active subscriber, you get to lock in that $100 off a year benefit. All right. Well, as he mentioned, use that code money. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks very much for having me.